Live from Southern California, this is the Jim Rome Show. Pretty whack weekend. That's whack. Yo, Dell, what's up? Pretty whack weekend for SoCal when it comes to the NBA, if we're being real. In fact, if we're being real, it was real whack. I mean, the Lakers do know that the playoffs have started, right? You sure as hell wouldn't know it by looking at them in game one against the Suns. Then again, the Lakers pretty much outperfected the game one no-show, haven't they? Then the Clippers kept their own tradition of manning down when it matters most alive. I mean, say what you want about the Lakers, right? Say what you want about the way they played the Suns in game one. No names mentioned. I'm looking at you, AD. AD, what's good? AD, what's good? What's good, AD? AD, what's good? Not your uh, effort. Not your mindset. Not your game. What's good, AD? Then again, say what you want about the Lakers and that no-show. At least they've got a history of doing that and then turning it all around. The Clippers, on the other hand. No, the Clippers have now lost four straight playoff games. And after Paul George tied that game against Dallas at 100 with just over three minutes left, the Clippers did what they've done the last few playoff games. In other words, absolutely nothing. They go on, they miss eight of their last nine shots, three or four from the line, from Lob City to Choke City again, and they get bullied by Luka throughout. Per usual, the more things change, the more they stay exactly the same. And from the looks of things, nothing has changed for the Clippers. And this is exactly what they get for tanking at the end of the regular season to avoid the Lakers. Yeah, they didn't want that smoke. They wanted the Mavs. They said as much when they tried to lose their last two regular season games. And believe this, this was not lost on the Mavericks either. They knew it. It's like, be careful what you ask for. They asked for a beating, and they got it. And now they're virtually in a must-win situation just one game in. And again, when they needed it more from their legends, when they needed it most from their legends, they were nowhere to be found. And speaking of vanishing acts, how about AD going all David Copperfield and making himself disappear? Nice trick, AD. What's good, AD? The magic, man. Like, I know magicians never share their secrets, but what do you say you break the magician's code, AD, and explain to us how that trick works? How at this part of your career, you can still pull that disappearing act? I mean, losing to the Suns is no crime. They're good. They're really good. But losing because you had a five-point lead early and then saying that you got lost in the offense is a crime. I mean, in reality, that's a basketball felony. Like, this dude missed 11 of 16 shots yesterday. He finished with 13 points yesterday against the very same team that he had 42 against only two weeks earlier. A basketball felon! The Lakers were a minus 18 when he was on the floor. Like, I know that whole plus-minus rating is not a perfect metric, but how the hell is that even possible? How can any team with that player ever be minus 18 in any game against any other team at any juncture of any season? That's not easy to do when you've got that guy on the floor, but easier to do when you're getting abused by a young counterpart. DeAndre Ayton, who just couldn't miss. One thing I will say about AD, though, 
one thing I have to give him credit for. You don't have to tell him he was garbage. garbage. He already knows. Usually I come out the gates, you know, very dominant. And I think tonight, well, today, uh, we had it going. I had a couple threes. We um, you know, get to the paint drum. So I kind of just got lost in the offense. You know, but I still have to be a certain find ways to, to get the ball. It just kind of took me out of rhythm. But it's on me. I still got to find ways to make plays on that end of the floor offensively. So, like I say, it, it's on me. I'm not, not too worried about you know, my performance. Um, I know I'll be better. Um, I know we'll be better. Um, the game two, I go. Wow. Like, I thought this guy's play was horrible yesterday. But his mindset and attitude were even worse. Did you hear what he just went with? You were up 15 to 10 in the first four and a half minutes and figured, quote, we had it going. So what? You just coast the rest of the way. There were 43 more minutes left in that game, a playoff game. You barely played one third of one quarter of that game. And you're thinking, ah, we're good. We're good. I think I'm going to go nap nation on this one. They don't need me today. Why exert any additional energy when we've already got this one in the can? Because I'm smart like that. Now, my man, actually, you're weird like that. And in this case, weird is not good. That's just whack. Almost as whack as winning an NBA title, playing a lot at the five, and then not wanting to play at the five, even though that's when the team is at its best, when you're at the five. You know what they say. All successful people are really good at doing things they don't want to do. Well, he doesn't like playing the five, even though they're better when he does. Anyway, I, I know the team is still trying to figure out that combination of Davis and Audrey Drummond and the fact that for some reason when they are on the floor together, Davis goes from being one of the best players on the planet to just another guy. The problem here is good is not good enough. Not when you're going up against the Phoenix Suns. You know, and all that crap about the stage being too big for a crew that had never been on it before is just that. Crap. Oh, oh. And if you thought that Chris Paul was not going to be in the middle of another crap storm, you can think again on that one too, because he was. In fact, you can pretty much set your watch to it, can't you? There are no guarantees or locks in life except that Chris Paul will be in the middle of a crap storm and then get called on it and then act like he has no idea whatsoever what you're talking about. And no, I'm not talking about his shoulder contusion in the second quarter. Followed by LeBron James, who's now got 10 points. And Chris Paul is down in pain. Oh boy. Holding his right shoulder. All writhing in pain. A blow right there by... Well, a little friendly fire, it appeared. Cam Johnson come in and right there graze Chris Paul and he immediately grabs that upper right portion of his neck and trapezius muscle area right there. Players from both teams gathering around the highly respected veteran. So he missed a few minutes and then he came back from that and he tried to fight through it. In fact, he did fight through it, but he didn't look like himself for much of the game. And then came this play when LeBron James was taking free throws in the fourth quarter and then, well, CP3 started to look exactly like CP3, allegedly. James missing again at the foul line. Whistle. James goes down hard to the court. Caruso and Payne get into it. Montrez Harrell runs into campaign. 
and coaches leave the bench area as things become a little bit contentious here. Well, it started with Chris Paul blocking out LeBron James when James was up in the air on the missed free throw. And then... It There's Chris Paul blocking him out. And, and that got called a foul. There's a loose ball foul on Chris Paul. Then there's an altercation. The altercation is under review. Look, I'm not going to say that that play is another sign of how dirty Paul is. I'm not saying that. But I am saying that that was a box out, undercut, with some sort of an attempted arm grab as well. I'm not saying that I think that was a dirty play. I'm saying Laker head coach Frank Vogel seemed to be saying that that was a dirty play. And my view was uh, an overly aggressive box out, dangerous play, you know, where Brown was in the air and got undercut. And then you had Anthony Davis saying that, quote, it was a dangerous play. But as I said, Paul, per usual, has no idea at all what anybody is talking about, telling Chris Haynes, quote, I don't know anything about that. I have absolutely nothing to say about that. We're just playing basketball and competing. I'm just thankful we got the win, and I'm looking forward to game two, end of quote. All right, so let me be really clear about this. Very clear about Chris Paul. He is a great player. One of the best at his position in the history of that sport. He's not called the point god for nothing. But let's not act like this is the first time he's been accused of being dirty. Let's not act like this is even the first time he's attempted something like that weird arm rip on a rebound with LeBron. He did the same thing when he was with the Rockets. That time, he really got LeBron. Damn near yanked his arm right out of its socket. This time, he didn't get him as badly. And he's probably pissed that he didn't. Just joking. Maybe. (laughs) Not really. Who knows at this point? Look, I'm not sure why LeBron reacted the way he did this time. I'm not sure why LeBron acted like he got hit and dragged by a tank. Maybe he was expecting similar pain to the last time. Maybe he was overselling it. Maybe he was just looking to buy himself a little extra time. Maybe he was channeling his inner AD, a big head. But I'll say this, undercutting a guy is dangerous. It's one of the dirtier things you can do in basketball. So is grabbing a guy's arm and trying to pull on it too. It's just not quite as dirty as punching a guy in the junk, which Paul has done in the past. But let's not kid ourselves, right? Chris Paul was one of the smartest players in NBA history. He's not running around, flailing around, out of control like a rookie. This dude is a basketball genius. He's an incredible player. Point being, he doesn't need to be doing this stuff, yet he always seems to be in the center of this stuff. So either he's one of the all-time dirty guys or he's one of the all-time unluckiest players because it keeps happening somehow. But it can't be both, right? So what are we talking about now for LeBron, an eye gouge, an undercut, maybe a clothesline in game two? I'm talking about CP3 too. Maybe a junk smashing game three. Man, LeBron will be like in a full body cast by the second round. LeBron has spent more time lying on the ground in agony of late than soccer players and Nancy combined. Just kidding. Once in a while, I've kind of got the smack off on the brain. Once in a while, I've got to give the people what they want. And i got to play the hits. Why? Why? 
Why? Because they smash you on the kneecap with a lead pipe. That's why. Clones, what do we want when we're craving protein or we need more energy? Not bars, not sugary snacks, not energy drinks. No, you know what we want? We want beef. We want beef, pure and simple. So where is the beef? It's in a package of Old Trapper Beef Jerky. Old Trapper is not your old man's jerky. Shriveled, dry, tasteless. No, Old Trapper Beef Jerky is made from lean strips of steak and quality spices that are smoked over a real wood fire. It's tender, it's tasty, it's not tough. And why is it so good? Because Old Trapper is a 50-year-old family business known for their relentless commitment to quality. They take smoked beef extremely seriously. You can taste it in every single bite. Old Trapper is packed with protein. It comes in four amazing flavors to satisfy all your cravings. Quality smoked meat at its finest, that goes with you wherever you go. Make sure you look for it in the Clearview bag. That way you can see the quality you're buying. That's why it's in a Clearview bag. Look for it in major retail stores near you. If you don't see it, ask for it by name because no other jerky compares. Oh, Trapper, what's your beef? Vincent Goodwill. Vincent, what's going on? How are you? Hey, Jim. How you doing, man? Good, dude. Good. Good to have you back. So you've got a great piece up right now on Yahoo about Trey Young and what went down at the Garden yesterday. Take me back to before the game. In fact, in the first quarter, why don't we start right there? When the Knicks fans broke out their bleep Trey Young chant, what were you thinking? I was thinking how much I miss the fans. And I'm usually not a person that goes into some of the, the, the theatrics and everything else, but I knew something was missing from the bubble. And something that, like, the crowd is almost like a, a third party um, in the drama of the NBA playoffs. And it, it makes you feel like you're part of something. It makes you feel like you need to be watching something if there's an engaged crowd. And Trey Young is like a wrestling heel. Like, I, I think he should go, like, full macho man, full, you know, NWO Hogan, get the uh, spray on beard and everything else, and just walk around with, you know, a James Brown cape and just go full full bore into it. Yeah, by the way, I think he's got that in him, and I think that's great. So why don't we talk about that now? Vincent Goodwill joining us. What do you make of that? For instance, why, before we get into that, how about the shot itself? The shot that he makes, and then he puts his finger to his lips to silence the crowd afterwards. What did you make of that whole sequence? Well, I, I thought it was almost a, a play that was a little bit improvised when you saw that John Collins slipped a bit, and Trey basically said, hey, get back, get back. I don't want any help here. And he saw Frank Nilakina on him, and he had seen him a little bit at the end of the first half. I thought it was a little bit of an unfair situation to put Frank in because his body wasn't warm. He's been sitting for two hours, all of that. But you're talking about an incredible moment from the kid in his first playoff game in a hostile environment. He made the right play. And I'm someone who thinks that Trey Young sometimes takes ill-advised shots, can take his team out of a rhythm. But in this one, he played largely under control, and he created a magic moment for himself. Not too dissimilar from what we saw Luka Doncic do in the bubble last year. Vincent Goodwill joining us. You know, it's not just that this guy's a good player and he's got some fans now who dislike him. It's the way he's always looking to get fouled and then maybe he oversells it. I mean, how much is there to that? And then how much does that feed into this villain image? It's a lot of it because we can think of villains just being good ball players who silence road crowds. You know, Kobe Bryant or Paul Pierce or, you know, Dwayne Wade or anybody else, but it's not about being great. Like being great, and I don't say anybody can be great, but great players that all automatically mean, you know, you're being a villain. Reggie Miller was a villain because he sold stuff, and then, you know, he threw the rock and hit his hand and tried to sell something to the refs, and everybody happened to see it. And this is before, you know, HD and all this other type of stuff. We saw 
what Reggie Miller was doing. We saw Reggie Miller get into opposing players' heads and how that affected them and how he was able to sort of stay cool. We saw Reggie Miller do the choke sign, the Spike Lee, and that other particular gesture that the NBC cameras never really show us now, but we know where Reggie's other hand was, you know, during that moment. You can't picture Trey Young doing the exact same thing, flopping and flailing, trying to get the calls, being a salesman for it. He's not a big guy. He's a little bit slight. So when you see him falling around, the refs are going to say, okay, maybe maybe that opposing player hit him. Maybe I should blow my whistle. You saw that play happen at the end of the fourth quarter with a minute left where R.J. Barrett barely grazed him and they called a foul. Like To me, that's the makings of a villain. It's not just being a great basketball player, Jim. It's everything around it. It's the sale job. It's the theatrics. And then it's the ability to be able to perform on command in these magical moments. Vincent Goodwill is joining us. Extremely well said. It's one thing to be all those things, and I think Trey is all those things, and I love that he is all those things, but it's quite another to do all those things in that house. They were F-bombing him minutes into the game, so when you consider what he did in game one and how that game ended and then what he said and how he acted after that game, what do you think the Knicks fans will be like when it comes to Trey in game two? Jim, have you ever been on the train in New York City? Yes, I have. F bombs are literally thrown out like rice at weddings. Okay, like you're you're not a New Yorker unless you get someone f bombing you. So I feel like Trey Young should should might as well just go to the DMV, stand in line for a couple hours, and get his New York City ID because he's a New Yorker now, and the New York crowd is going to let him have it not just from the start of the game but from the moment that they walk out of the tunnel and you see the floppy hair the new york fans will boo him like he's a bad performer at the showtime at the apollo that's what it's going to be and you're looking forward to that as much as you're looking forward to the game and i'm looking forward to see how trey young handles being in even a more hostile environment in a desperate environment for the knicks because basketball wise they can't afford to go down 2-0 headed down to Atlanta, even if Atlanta is New York South. I used to love watching Showtime at the Apollo. You and I can talk about that some other time. I love that show. What a great show that was. That was real. All right, so if that was the best game of a really strong opening weekend of the NBA playoffs, I mean, each series is only one game in, one game in I should say. But if you're the Clippers, how concerned are you, Vincent, that you didn't just lose, but you fell into this familiar pattern in the final four minutes? Not that they lost, but how they lost. I was really, I'm going to say alarmed, Jim, because I don't think you can be alarmed when you watch the Clippers go Clippers. Like, we've seen, we've seen their movies, no matter who's the coach, who's the player, what the jerseys look like, we've seen the Clippers. But I think the fact that Luka Doncic scored one point in the fourth quarter and he still was able to control everything that happened there because the Clippers had no answer for him and how to defend him and how to defend, you know, the Hardaways and the Finney Smiths and everything else. And to me, Jim, the Clippers are always going to be a team that teeters on disaster whenever they're not hitting their jump shots because they don't have a guy, as much as I like Paul George and Kawhi Leonard, they don't have a guy who can slow the game down and say, you know what, we're not hitting our jump shots. Let me go to the, let me get into the lane. Let me get fouled and let me go to the line to slow this momentum down because we know when things start, start going downhill for the Clippers, those heads start going down. Guys start looking around, and they don't seem like the most mentally tough group. And from a basketball standpoint, they don't have the triggers in place to help stem the tide, to help them regain their composure. And not that they lost their composure, Jim. They just couldn't find 
anything, any way on the floor to sort of slow things down and regain control of the game. And in the last five minutes, that's got to be Kawhi. That's got to be Paul George. Why are you there if you're not being primetime players late in that game? No doubt. And it's not the first time we've seen that from them there. Vincent Goodwill is my guest. Vincent, let me move over to the Lakers. What was your reaction to how Anthony Davis showed up or more accurately did not show up yesterday in Phoenix? Jim, I was going to text you and ask you if you had a private plane that you could send down to L.A. to uh, retrieve Anthony Davis so he could arrive (laughs) in time for the third quarter. Of, uh, game, I do game not. One. I do not keep was, a private jet. I do not keep a he, private jet, but I see it working. <laughs> he was on the milk carton. He was he was missing in action, and sometimes he has these games where whether he's not being featured or he's not into it as much, that you just wonder where he is. And to me, I feel like that's on Frank Vogel. That's on LeBron James. This is your most important player while LeBron James is still nursing that injury. He has to be able to carry this team and let the offense run through him. I'm not, I'm not saying LeBron James can't be a supporting player, but you have to sort of shift your direction because Anthony Davis is not Tim Duncan. He's not Kevin Garnett. He's not walking into a game in full lather, ready to destroy you. Like He has to be worked into the game, and for him to say after the game, hey, it's on me, you're going to expect a more engaged Anthony Davis in game two, but you shouldn't have to have this many wake-up calls if you're a champion on a title defense knowing everything that's at stake for the Lakers right now. So, Vincent, where do you come out on Chris Paul? Like, was that a dirty play? Was that just him competing and playing basketball? All of a sudden, CP3 is right in the middle of this crap storm yet again. Bottom line, we know this is a great, great player, but where do you come out on him and moments like that? You can't be in the wrong place at the wrong time all the time. Like, I've had friends that there's always a story about them being mixed up in some nonsense from the time that they were 15. And by the time they turned 21, I'm like, bro, the common denominator here is you. And you're still my friend. I'm still going to help you out. But I'm looking at you a little bit sideways. And that's how you look at Chris Paul when you box someone out when you're not in front of them. Vincent Goodwill is joining me. A few more moments. All right, so well said. You got Trey. You have Luka. You have DeAndre Ayton. I know it's only one game in each series, so I'm not going to overreact. But do you find any significance in the fact? And also on top of that, you got John Morant. You got Memphis beating Golden State and then Utah in game one. Vincent, what I'm getting at is, does it feel like this is a moment for the association's young players? At some point, Jim, the league is going to have to move on from the LeBron James, the Kevin Durant, the Stephen Curry generation. Like, there's going to have to be a shift. And that shift isn't necessarily going to be one of those things where it's smooth. These young guys are going to have to take it. And you're going to have to take it from a LeBron James, take it from a KD, take it from a Steph Curry. We saw John Morant take it from the Golden State Warriors. I don't care what the circumstances were, who wasn't playing or anything else. These young guys are no longer afraid of the big stage, whether that's because they played a whole season without a crowd and they've been able to ease themselves into it. But these guys seem so much more equipped for the big stage so that there is no stage fight coming into the playoffs. Remember, we used to see Scottie Pippen with migraine headaches and everything else, and that was a dude in his third year that couldn't handle it. These guys are rookies to the playoff stage. And they are ready. And at some point, the NBA is going to have to market some of these guys, which is why I think Trey Young being a villain is very good for the next generation. But, yeah, Jim, at some point, we're going to see a changing of the guard 
Might as well be now. I think so. He is a Yahoo senior writer. He did cover the Bulls for NBC Sports Chicago. He did cover the Pistons for the Detroit News. He is now officially a very good friend of this program. He is Vincent Goodwill. Dude, you and I will be doing that again soon, I hope. Great job. Really well done. Absolutely. I'm glad to be a friend of the program, Jim. This is this is really, really cool. It's Small Business Month, and Dell Technologies and Windows are celebrating your unstoppable drive. Save up to 45% on powerful PCs with Windows 10 Pro to work from anywhere and top monitors and docks for the ultimate business setup, all with easy financing options through Dell Financial Services. Speak to a Dell Technologies advisor who can help you find the right business tech, server, storage, and cloud solutions at 877-ASK-DELL. That's 877-ASK-DELL for Small Business Month savings. Here's something I don't think anybody thought anybody would ever say ever again. Phil Mickelson is a major championship winner. Again, that's number six in his Hall of Fame career. And after winning the PGA yesterday, two shots clear of the field at the record-setting age of 50, all I can do, all anybody can do is give a tip of the hat and a big thumbs up to the king of the hat tip and the big thumbs up. What this guy did at Kiowa was nothing short of incredible. I mean, miraculous, like impossible, except that it really did happen. I mean, what else would you call it when somebody makes history and does something that nobody's ever done before in a sport they've played for like 5,000 years? It's not even so much that his golf was incredible. I mean, it was and it wasn't. It was. It was. It's that he even had it in him at this point in his career. Like, I know a lot of you want to jam a big, fat, extra dry crow sandal in my face and demand that I eat it, but let's not act or pretend like I was the only one who had written this dude off. If you're going to sit here on the Monday after one of the most unlikely major wins ever, in fact, it was the most unlikely major win ever, if you're going to sit here and say to me, you called your shot, that you saw this coming, that you knew it, you're a liar. And a really bad one at that. There is nobody not named that guy who saw that coming. I mean, just stop with that bullcrap because that's what that is. This guy was ranked outside of the top 100 coming into the PGA Championship. Since September, he had missed six cuts. He had never finished inside the top 20 in the eight events where he played his way into the weekend. He just took a free handout to get into the U.S. Open next month at Torrey. He said at the Masters this past April that he had plateaued and was frustrated that he was not getting better. He started playing senior tour events. He became a huckster for long-sleeve, button-down golf shirts and wellness coffee. Man, his golf was bad, too. It just was. And he was getting older, and he was on a path that ended with stacks of cash for wacky endorsement deals. Oh, Oh, and he was plus 20,000 at the books before teeing off on Thursday. Plus 20,000, a.k.a. 200 to 1. You put a buck down, you get 200 bucks back. You put a hundo down, you get 20 gur back. You put a grand down, you get 200 gur back. That's how much of a long shot he was. Let me put it to you another way. According to CBS Sports HQ, the Jets... And Lions have better odds to play each other in the Super Bowl than Phil had to win the PGA Championship this week. I mean, speaking of betting, normally the fan favorites will get some action based entirely on loyalty. 
popularity, name recognition, blind stupidity, like you see it all the time when Tiger Woods is the betting favorite when he's got no business being so. Here's how little anybody believed in Phil this week. Less than 1% of the money wagered before Thursday in Vegas came in on Phil. Less than 1%. You think a guy like that, an enormously popular guy like that, the people's champ, the man of the people, you'd think that he'd get action, more action, especially at 200 to 1. Nope, less than 1%. So let me say two things. Let me get these two things out of the way. First and most importantly, Mickelson defied reality. And I'm the first one to own that and admit that. It was incredible. I mean, what else can anybody say or do on a guy at that age on that track, playing the way he had been playing coming in, just did what he did? I mean, he literally, literally came out of nowhere to rip that major, an unlikely major. And you can't fluke your way to it. He didn't back in. He earned it, man. Credit to Phil. This guy is serving the entire world a Thanksgiving feast of crow. Put in the time, leaned out, made all the right shots when he had to. Got to give it to the guy. I mean, it was amazing. It really was amazing. Period. I'm just going to say that. It was amazing. Amazing. The other thing I want to say, pull up a freaking chair, grab a fork and a knife and shut the hell up and stop acting like I'm the only one who didn't see this coming because it's actually the exact opposite. Again, there's not anybody anywhere not named that guy who thought that was possible. And credit to this guy, man. He did it. He saw the impossible and made it real. But don't you come in here and run your I told you so junk. I'm not even going to dignify that with a response. Told me what? Told me what exactly? I mean, come on. No one was denying the fact that this guy's game was garbage coming in because it was. Just because you're a fan does not mean that you thought he'd ever win again on that big of a stage. Of course, at his age, come on, none of you told me anything. Don't act like you called your shot. You didn't say it. The sports books didn't believe it. The betting public didn't believe it. The golf media didn't believe it. Guys that he plays with did not believe it. No one did except this guy, which means two things again. Absolutely incredible. It was amazing. And it makes you a liar if you say you saw it happening. Because you didn't. You can love this guy, and a lot of you do, and that's fine. Just don't lie about your expectations, man. Try to be honest with yourself. It's not that hard. Just try to be honest. Try to be accountable. I am. I'm tipping my hat, man. He was amazing. The guy really was amazing. And nobody can take that from him. And that was an an inspiration to all. You can still get it done at that age. You know what the guy did, man? Literally, he reinvented himself. You see the way this guy leaned out? You see the way this guy got in shape? You see the way this guy got right mentally? He reinvented himself and ripped a miracle. Six under at the ocean course, that wind blowing off the water and holding off Brooks Kepka is an amazing accomplishment for anybody. But doing it at age 50, outside the top 100, coming off all those missed cuts, the special exemption at Torrey, man, that makes for a legendary accomplishment. Absolutely legendary, and I got no problem saying it. But some of you myopians, on the other hand, you need to check yourselves and be honest. He got over, but he got over on all of us, you included, lying Phil fan myopians. You're a liar. 
I'm owning it. Now you need to do the same thing. That was amazing. So let's be real for a minute. Two out of three men will experience some form of hair loss by the time they're 35. And more than 50 million men in the U.S. suffer from male pattern baldness. And there are only two FDA-approved medications that can prevent hair loss. Keeps offers both. Let's talk about Keeps. Keeps offers a simple, stress-free way to keep your hair. Convenient virtual doctor consultations and medications delivered straight to your door every three months. You do not have to leave your home. And low-cost treatments starting at just 10 bucks a month and Keeps offers generic versions. Discreet packaging and proven results. Keeps also has more five-star reviews than any of the competition. Prevention is key. Treatments can take four to six months to see results, so you want to start right now. If you're ready to take action and prevent hair loss, go to keeps.com slash Rome to get your first month of treatment for free. keeps.com slash Rome and get your first month free. That's keeps.com slash Rome. Kevin Kelly is my guest kevin great to have you on how are you doing great how are you good good kevin so it's been a couple of weeks since you were named head coach of presbyterian what have the last few weeks been like for you i've uh, been kind of like a tornado i'm actually trying to i was at the other school 24 years and i was the athletic director too the last 13 or so so i'm trying to leave them in a good place and teach the guys that are taking my spots and then coming here and recruiting and doing on-campus stuff and trying to find a house so my wife didn't kill me and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> I got you. Kevin Kelly, my guest. You know, Kevin, it's funny because I would say you had a good thing going at Pulaski Academy, but that'd be a major understatement. You were dominating. You would receive national attention for your approach and how you were changing the game. You were a legend in coaching circles, getting love from the likes of Bill Belichick. So what made you feel like the opportunity at Presbyterian was too good to pass up? What was unique about this? You know, I, we'd spread those, and I say spread those nine championships over 18 years, but we'd won six of the last seven. And one of my assistant coaches that was with me the whole time, he's the only one that was with me the whole time, he called me in his office one day, he looked at me, he's like, where are we going to go? We've always wanted a challenge and continue to improve, but we won six of the last seven state titles. There's not a lot less, uh, else we can do. So I started thinking about that, and this opportunity came up, and, and it just really made me think I wanted a new challenge. But I wanted to be somewhere, you know, I've talked to colleges before, and they haven't always, you know, they would get to the point where I'd say, okay, when we do this no punting thing on the field or, or onside kick, you know, what, what's that going to be like for you as an athletic director? And they'll always say, look, we don't, you know, we really don't want you doing all that here. And I'm like, why are you talking to me then, you know? And, and uh, this one was different. This, Rob, this athletic director, Rob Acunto, said, hey, your deal is to coach on the field and make your decisions, and, and, and I've got to help help the sports off the field. So, that really got my attention, that and wanting a new challenge. And, uh, and what, what better challenge than being at the Division One FCS level at a school that hasn't won in a while? I like that. Kevin Kelly joining us. So when we talk about the things that you just mentioned, right, you developed a reputation as a guy who never punts. According to The Athletic, your teams have punted eight times in the last 16 seasons. Hunter Henry, who played for you, said, quote, he's an outside-the-box thinker. He's always trying to gain an advantage. He will do whatever it takes to win. He's a winner. End of quote. So for those who don't know, when did you first start thinking about approaching the game differently and exactly what did inspire that? Well, I, I was actually surprised, surprisingly hired uh, as I was the OC there in 2003. And the head coach abruptly left. I didn't even know he was not going to be there. And 
they called me in and just said, hey, the job's yours. So I, I was all excited, you know how you get when you get something big. And I walked into the office, and it hit me, how am I going to be that much different than than the last guy or the guy before him? Because the school had never even been to the finals. It had only been to the semifinals twice. So that's when I started thinking about the game differently. And I'm a numbers guy. I majored in accounting, and I have biology on my degree as well. And so uh, I thought a little differently even before that. But but I got in. I happened to find one study of field position. This was right before Moneyball came out of the book and well before the movie. And, and I just started experimenting that year. I think we punted 21 times that year, and I was trying to come up with some numbers in field position. And then it just kind of gravitated towards – the fact that I realized if, if I don't punt in a season, then I don't even have to practice it, and, and they can't put a value on that time I get to use for other things in practice, and it's kind of evolved from there. Again, I think that's awesome. Kevin Kelly joining us. You know, along those lines, you had an interesting line when you were talking about this very thing to Andy Staples. You said, quote, the answers are out there, but nobody's willing to go through it because they think it's boring. Fortunately for me, quote, I actually like the numbers. So do you get the sense that maybe coaches are bored by looking at the numbers? And as a result, they're leaving wins on the table because of it. Yeah, there's no question. I mean, you're a different thinker. You did your. I've been listening to you forever, so kind of honored to be on here, to be honest. But uh, you you do things different in your radio in your radio setup, and I think there's a different way to do things to be successful. I do think coaches leave wins on the table. I mean, some of the bigger names and 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 not only not only football but sports have come to visit and and look and say, how did you arrive at these decisions? They want to look and think a little differently themselves, but then they go back and, and two things stop them. One, they're risk averse. I mean, they know that, that, you know, they're scared of what bad could happen because the numbers don't always work. And what I mean is it's like a casino in Las Vegas. I call it the casino theory. If every decision I make only gives me a 1% edge or a 2% edge, but I make 15 of those in a game, and if it was a pick em game at 50-50, without getting any better as a football team, I could be a 65% chance to win just by making those decisions right. They're not always going to occur right. And if a coach on fourth and one in the first quarter in college punts the ball and loses the game, nobody thinks anything about it. But if he goes for it in the first quarter and they lose the game, he might not have a job on Monday. So they're kind of scared of that. Even though they do and the numbers say they'll win more in the long run, they might get fired in the short run if they they do those things. I think people are scared to do that. The beauty is – I'm here in college now, and I've never had a college job. So if if I get fired because I'm doing those things, I'll just go back down to high school. I never was. You know, it was a bonus for me to be here in the first place. Kevin Kelly is joining us. So, Kevin, let me ask you this. And first of all, I appreciate what you said about the radio program. I actually had that same conversation with myself that you had when you got promoted. When I first got into the business, I did say to myself, why you? Why you? How are you different? Why are you different? And initially, my reaction to myself was, I'm really not. I'm really not. So how can I be different without just being different to be different? But I appreciate what you said about the program. You and I are on the same page. So like when everybody focuses on what you do when it comes to punts and kickoffs, your offense overall, though, is really fascinating in and of itself. You told Pete Thamel, quote, our whole offense is based on my guy not having to beat your guy, end quote. It sounds so counterintuitive. I thought the whole point was, in almost any sport, beat the guy in front of you. So where did that part of your approach come from, and exactly what does that mean? Well, that means, like, in the past three years, for instance, out of my 22 starters in high school, the most we've ever had at 200 pounds over are four people, four guys out of 22 starters. Now think about your seven or your nine offensive and defensive linemen. And only four of those guys at most. Last year, three guys, over 200 pounds. My guy can't beat your guy on the line, so we've got to design a better offense. 
we had slower guys. Last year, my, my best receiver had 1,800 yards receiving. The guy's never ran faster than a 4.75 in his life in the 40. And so you've got to design schemes better because, and, and you know, because in the NFL or the NBA, ultimately, you know, if you go, if you just do matchups where my guy's got to beat your guy, then eventually the best guy wins. Well, I don't want to, I don't want to only win if I've got the best players. I want to win all the time. So we had to design things and, and it's, and it's very subtle things, but there's a million of them. For instance, angle blocking instead of zone blocking. For instance, um, I'm not going to run a go route and count on my guy to be your corner. I'm going to run a double move route or a double move read where he gets to stop, hesitate, and then go. And if he doesn't have the GIB, he gets to stop again. So I just never want to count on that to be a winner. I wanted to be able to design something where no matter what, no matter what the talent level, we've always got a chance to win. And I think we've done just that. Kevin Kelly is joining us. So if you need something to get even more interesting, how about this? I know a lot of your ideas come from Freakonomics and Malcolm Gladwell. What have you been able to take from sources like that and then apply to football? How does that work? It just teaches you how to think differently. Part of it is teaching the how to win people over and and how to change the culture because you know those are those the like freakonomics is great because it takes things that appear you know that appear to be a certain way and it really proves that's normal thoughts and things that we accept in America almost as fact and it and it takes those cases and shows you how they might not be that way or how they definitely aren't and books like those and think like a freak and then Gladwell you know the movie the, not the movie the book David and Goliath. Everybody thinks that the, the Bible story, David and Goliath, that David was the underdog. And Gladwell goes and does a lot of research over there and figures it out and points it out, where really David was the favorite if it would have been a you know, Vegas had a line on it, because Goliath was a blind guy. He was oversized with, like, the elephant disease, and he could barely lead himself down the mountain. And David was a sharpshooter in the Army with a slingshot before that. So, I mean, he was going to take one rock, one stone, and throw it and hit the guy. It was going to be over with. He wasn't going to get in hand-to-hand combat with a guy. So he just shows you that there's different ways to think. Those guys show you that things aren't necessarily true, like punting and field position and run the ball and play defense to win championships, that we've always thought. It's the same thing in Freakonomics. They'll tell you these things look like this. America accepts it. But that's not really the case. And that's what I get out of those things and, and love it. Gladwell, I'm kind of mad at him. I wish he'd listened to this. He once talked to me about doing a book together, but we never mentioned it again, so I'm kind of sad. Well, yeah, so what happened there? What's that all about? That's really disappointing. <laughs> it was disappointing. We were in a green room waiting to go out for the uh, Sloan Sports Analytics MIT thing and, and uh, had a conversation. He said, hey, maybe we'll write a book. And I've tried to contact him but uh, through Twitter, but I can't get a hold of the guy. My man, well, you could try Instagram or another way, or, or Kevin, as you know, you could write that book by yourself. Well, I don't know how to write a book. I'm not, not look. I'm a football coach. I'm not a book writer. But, but uh, hey, if you, if you want to write one, I'm gay. Okay. Well, yeah, I need to write a book too. Maybe we should do that. We should collaborate on that. I, I might be up for that. You, you're way smarter than me. I don't know if I can keep up, but that's something to think about. <laughs> Listen, what about this? Like, it, people in different walks of life, they have success in a particular spot. Then they get a new opportunity. Then they change their approach. So, how are you approaching this opportunity? Is it a matter of doing what you've always done, or is it about keeping the core principles and then adapting them to the college game? What is your approach to this? Now, you you just nailed it. I, it, it is about keeping the core principles and adapt, adapting them to the college game. You know, it, it, the numbers change a little bit on the field, and that's the way I do a lot of my decisions. But, you know, all my buddies and friends that have coached at different levels or that have been a big part of the game, 
they'll tell you if it works at high school, it works in college, it works in the NFL, and and guys that I know that have gone all the way. You know, one of my one of my good friends, Gus Malzahn, when he was coaching in high school, and I coached against him when he moved up and was the offensive coordinator for Arkansas in the SEC and did really well. People were telling him, "Hey, your your, your offense won't work up here because these are SEC defenses." And and I and you know and he and I talked and I go well Gus you're not taking your high school player up there with you you're going to be playing with an SEC offense too I don't know how they think you know that makes a difference so so I think I think football is football I think the numbers change a little bit with with the with the game as it, as it goes on because you're kicking off from the 35 instead of the 40 but overall I know this I found a way to create turnovers when they don't count onside kicks as one and that's a big story and who wins and loses. Uh, how to use fourth down, how it changes first, second, and third down, and people don't even bring that into, you know, into factoring in when you should go for it or not, and all those things. And and I think I'm, you know, just based off the numbers, I think I'm on to something. If you look at the history of how it worked in high school, I think so. Kevin Kelly, my guest, I know you're on to something. So going forward, what do you want people to think about when they think about a Kevin Kelly coached Presbyterian team? You know, I hope they see uh, a complete turnaround and they see that this can win at this level because I wanted that challenge. I really believe in it, and I wanted to show them that. So I hope that I hope that they will give it a chance. I hope they're open to a different style of football without condemning. When I first started playing this style back in in high school, I was like uh, I was like a leper, a person with leprosy or something. When I would go sit in at a coach's clinic, everybody would move away from me, and I, and I didn't know why. And they told me you're kind of denouncing our game. You know, you're, you're defaming our game. We're, we're a run-the-ball-hard-play-defense, that you know, punt the ball, kick it, and that kind of stuff. And you're playing the game differently, and that was on offense too. And, and I don't want people to think that about this. Give it a chance to watch it. Now, I don't want them to convert to it because I've got an advantage. I don't want everybody else doing this too. But I hope the fans and the people that are watching the game can appreciate that it's a different way to do something, a different style to attack things. And, and a different game and enjoy it because it is a, it is within the rules of the game. It's another form, and I think there's always a different entertaining way to do things. I'm not trying to entertain, like you said, not trying to be different to be different, but just trying to uh, find a way to be successful with kids no matter whether they're better or worse. One year I had a really, really good, talented team, and we, quote, mercy ruled everybody, beat everybody 35 that year. So people go, well, will this work if you've got better players in the other team? Yeah, absolutely it will. We're way, way better then. So that that's what I hope they do is just give it an open chance, look at it, and then, you know, if it, if it goes well, then get excited and get behind it because football is the one great sport where 90,000 people will see and they're all cheering for the same thing. So I think that's pretty cool in America. That's divided now. Absolutely love it. The head football coach at Presbyterian College, he was named head coach earlier this month, the 2016 USA Today National Football Coach of the Year. Kevin, what a great, great jungle debut after all this time. That was a fascinating conversation. I expect no less. Really good to have you on the show. Good luck. Let's make sure we do it again soon. Well, I appreciate it. And hopefully if you're ever in the South Carolina area on a Saturday and we're in town, stop by. We'll give you the best treatment, give you the sideline view, and uh, and uh, it's open to anybody that wants to come. A different future starts with you. That's why GoDaddy does more than help you find a name. You can create, sell, and get found online. So any small business could be a driving force to create change or build an empire. We know old ideas aren't cutting it anymore. So we're calling for a new generation of thinking. Your way of thinking. So whatever you have in mind that will help make a different future, find everything you need to get started at GoDaddy.com. Because the future isn't decided yet. It's up to us to make it happen. Start different at GoDaddy.com. 
in what might have felt like something of a surprise announcement, I did reveal a date for this year's Smack Off. I'd been saying, I'm going back and forth on this. Do we do it the way we've always done it and make it a summer event, or am I going to push this thing back to the fall? I thought about it, thought about it, then I did it. And in case you missed it, go ahead. Clear your calendar for Friday, June 25th. The summer event is still a summer event. And if you're into countdown clocks, now would be a very good time to set yours for the following. 32 days, 23 shows. Once again, 32 days, 23 shows. If you're not in the field, you are counting down the days. If you are in the field, or if you're trying to be, all that matters to you is the number of shows that are left between now and then. Because 23 shows sounds like a long time, but it's not. I mean, it's not a long time to get qualified. It's also not a long time to RSVP. It's not a long time to get reps, renew rivalries, or strengthen your case for guaranteed airtime on the 25th. Remember, being in the field does not guarantee that you get on the air. Getting on the air does not guarantee that you'll get a prime slot. To be on the air. All these things matter and you're running out of time. 23 shows is going to blow right on by. Smack off 27 will be here before anybody knows it. And I like that. I like it because it's now a sprint to the finish. It's a short season. No time to wait. It's kind of like me, I don't know, walking up to a nest of murder hornets with a Louisville banging out my spikes pointing to the upper deck and teeing off because searing pain because I know I just put the entire field and everybody who wants the invite into an all-out frenzy on Friday when I dropped a date barely a month out so now despite the smack off being a legacy event with a soon-to-be 27 years of uninterrupted history, there's still a part of the audience that has got no idea what I'm talking about. And that's the way it should be. What that means is we're adding new listeners to the program who need to be caught up, who need to be educated. So let me drop some knowledge. Let me use this opportunity to break down the smack off to fresh ears and eyes. And I'll do that quickly right now. The smack off debuted all the way back in 1995. And it was for one reason and one reason only. I've made the point. I want to make it again right now. The callers have always been a pretty important part of the show, but not nearly as important as callers on other shows. And I find myself back in the day, or in the early days of the program, weeding out a bunch of garbage calls to get to, to, get to one amazing call. Because the thing about this show, we had the best callers. There just weren't a ton of them. So I'd always think to myself, man, if I could just pick the people I want to call the program, wouldn't that be amazing? Which you can't do, but I can do it one day out of the year. So not something I could do 300 times a year, but I could do it once a year. So that's what we did in 1995. I picked who I wanted to call that one time, that one show. I had no idea how it would go, but I had a pretty good feeling. And come to find out, it worked. It worked really, really well. JT the Brick won the first ever Smack Off back in 95. Vance Smack, what an honor to be a part of the first annual Great American Smack Off. The greatest city, the deepest tradition, and the best smack comes from New York and the Bricks. When the earthquake hit, 
I didn't pick up the fish wrap to read about the damage. I looked to the box scores to see if the Knicks pulled out another gutty win. I have a passion to see Cal Ripken rupture a kidney this season than to see him break my beloved Lou Gehrig's record. Today is a celebration of smack. I compare my experience to when I pledged my fraternity back in college. For the first few months, I was a punk who had to wait on hold and pick and choose my spots to smack. Now I feel like the pledge master who gets to spank the new plebes on the butt while they say, thank you, JT the Brick. Can I please have another? How about my man going third person? He did it. JT the Brick will tell you himself that that event and that day changed his life. Hell, he wrote an entire chapter in his book all about that phone call and what came next. Because what came next for him was a career in national radio that turns 25 this Memorial Day weekend. And even though he never called in again to run smack, he didn't need to. His path was already set, and so was the smack-offs. Because the smack-off became a legendary staple. And not just on this program, but in sports talk radio on the whole. Over the next 26 events, only 14 people have won. That's one of my favorite stats ever. Only 14 different callers won the next 26. And exactly half of those titles belong to three guys. Shawnee the Cablin Asian, who had a dynasty of sorts in the mid-2000s and the only caller ever to three-peat. Brad in Corona, who ripped his rookie event and four more after that in a span of just 12 years. And the aforementioned Lef in Laguna, who is your defending champ, a force of nature onto himself. He's won three of his crowns, all three of them, in fact, in the last five years. Three out of five. Is that any good? You want to talk about coming out of nowhere late in the game. This guy is three for five. Those three legends in a league of their own, and even though the Cablin Asian was stacking his before Brad and Left came along, you cannot deny his dominance over that era. He owned the event. But for the past six years, it has been the Brad and Left show. Every title since 2015 has been evenly split among the two of them. And every one of them has been earned regardless of what the BIC Brad said this past Friday when he RSVP'd. Okay, Jimmy, quick ATP here at the end. I know we had a uh, tax filing deadline last week. May I ask whether you reported Left and Laguna's 2020 Smackoff Championship as a charitable contribution? Uh, no, I did not. I don't think he did, nor did I, and he's not giving that back, and nor would I ask for it back. So, if you're new to the Smackoff, those three are the first ballot Hall of Famers. They're walking around with more hardware than anybody else. And it's believed that all three of them will be present and accounted for in Smack Off 27. Brad already RSVP'd, and his RSVP is better than most callers' calls on that day. This guy's just flexing. He's not even trying. He's always made the game look easy. Lef is the defending champ, though. Shawnee has shown up the last couple of years after a decade plus of being away. But that does not mean that one of them is guaranteed to win. There are some other monsters in the field. Former champs like Mark in Hollywood, Vic in NoCal, Mike in Indy. You never know. I afraid he might make a phone call. Jeff from Richmond could shock the world. Chael Sonnen. They're all capable. They can all do damage. They can all win. 
And then you've got a trio of dudes who seem almost destined to win at some point. Caleb in Green Bay, Rick in Buffalo, Benny in Wisco. The surprise would not be any of them winning. The surprise is none of them have won yet, and they've all come close. And then you've got other guys like Mark in Boston, Jeff in Southfield, trending in the right direction. You've got guys who come out of nowhere. I mean, they're good enough to be in the field, but then they shock the field. Dan in Denver, as an example, had a really sneaky top 10 finish a few years back. Then you have your golden ticket class of 21 that badly wants to rise up and shock the world. What I'm saying is this. If you are new to this thing, it's almost impossible to explain this thing. You have to experience it to understand it. Even I can't really explain it. So do yourself a favor. Block out three hours to listen or watch live on June 25th. It's like nothing you've ever seen or heard before on this show or any other show because there is no other show who turns the entire day over to the very best callers and then judges their performance. Man, it's a blast. It's fun. It's funny. It's savage. It's vicious. It's shocking. It's compelling. It's riveting. It's entertaining. It's all of those things. And in some cases, it can be life-changing. Ask some who have won it. Starting tomorrow, I will begin to introduce, or in this case, reintroduce the players to you and their body of work. You'll see why this show, The Jungle, really does have the most unique and best callers ever, by a mile. And you'll see why getting them all together on one day is must-see TV on CBS Sports Network and must-listen-to radio. But now you understand the format. Now that you do, it's all of them and almost none of me, and then they go at it, and the winner gets five grand. Five grand and their name on an NHRA rig driven by Cruz Pedregon and the all-important title, King of Smack. And that does mean something around here. Ask the 14 guys whose name will not be forgotten. These are legendary names on the show and in the genre. JT the Brick. Jeff Detola, Doc Mike Detola, Stevie Carbone, Shawnee the Cabin Asian, Silk Bra, Jeff from Richmond, Iafrady, Brad in Corona, Vic in NoCal, Chael Sonnen, Mark in Hollywood, Mike in Indy, and your three-time champ. He's currently defending the crown, left the Laguna Beach Bully. If you want to be one of them, you have to call and get qualified. You got to do something so good, so different, so fresh, so funny, so unique that I give you an invite to the biggest day on the biggest stage. You want to play for five grand. You want to play for legend status. Call me up. Prove it. I got a stack of golden tickets and an hourglass that is bleeding sand. 32 days, 23 shows, now or never, go time. Ever think things like this, like I'm not going very far, or I'm in a rush, or it's too uncomfortable, or sometimes I just forget. Listen, do not kid yourself. There is no such thing as a good excuse for not buckling up. If you've used any of these excuses or any others, you're putting yourself at risk of injury or death. 
in 2019, nearly 10,000 people were unbuckled when they were killed in crashes. That's 43% of people killed in motor vehicle crashes that were not wearing seatbelts. So no matter what kind of a car you drive, wearing your seatbelt is the best defense in a crash. Even when you sit in the back seat, you still have to buckle up. The same goes for when you ride in taxis or you use ride-sharing services too. Law enforcement is on the lookout and writing tickets, so why would you take that risk? Seatbelts save lives. Do the smart thing. Buckle up every single trip, day or night. Click it or ticket. Paid for by NHTSA. You know I'm talking about John Morosi. John, welcome back. How are you? Jim, my friend, I love this time of year, and thank you for the Bob Seeger mention. I saw him play once in person with my parents, actually. It was a great <laughs> multi-generational show. Uh, he is the Springsteen of the Midwest. You know, I was going to say to you, it's kind of like seeing a Bruce Springsteen show with your parents. What a good dude, too, and a sports guy. I mean, do you know how good of a guy this is? Have you ever spoken to him or met him or know anything about him other than his great music catalog? Number one, I was, as a young child, we were actually on a rental car shuttle with him. <laughs> in, at the Denver airport, I was probably nine, and my parents were over the moon thrilled that when we were at the rental car shuttle in Denver, the, the, the Hertz rental car bus pulls up and they say, okay, next up, cars for Seeger and Morosi. So that was a great family memory. Uh, and actually, he wrote some songs, uh, Jim, about Ann Arbor. And a lot of the, the town's main street is about Main Street in the town where I live. And even the area that he talked about uh, that was out in the boondocks where it was uh, totally out in the country is now not far from where I reside now. So he's actually spoken about the town where I live. I love that. John Morosi is joining us. All right, then, John, let me jump into this right now. Whenever you and I get together, we talk about the NL West, it seems like. I could break down or you could break down every single team, but why don't we start with the Padres? They've won nine straight. They've won 12 of 13. Fernando Tatis Jr. is mashing once again. I mean, how much fun is it to watch this team and how scary are they to try to match up with in a series? Best record in baseball right now, Jim, and I love the way the Padres have weathered the storm of the expectations early on. Uh, Now we're almost one-third of the way through the season, and they have the best record in the game. They have been able to live up to those expectations to where now it's just their talent and they're just playing baseball. And you see how much fun they are having, Jim. Fernando Tatis Jr., he misses those 10 games in April right after signing the extension. And I think a lot of us thought, oh, no, here he comes. He's got an injury, Uh, the expectations, how's he going to respond? Well, his slugging percentage since then, not as OPS, Jim, his slugging percentage is over 800. <laughs> that is, uh, for a short, short burst, Hall of Fame of Hall of Fame level production since he's come back, which is really fun to watch. So right. he has been scintillating at the plate. And at the same time, Jim, a lot of the players who had to step up their game while he was out, like Trent Grisham, like Jake Cronenworth, have continued that level of productivity to the point now where the lineup one through eight is really humming along. John Morosi is joining us. All right, then having said that, John, what's it say about the NL West that, as you point out, they could have the best record in all of baseball. They've won nine straight, and still the Padres have only a one-game lead in the division over the Dodgers and a two-game lead over the Giants. What's that say then about the West? 
It's the best record in baseball, certainly at the top end. There is not a better top three anywhere in the game. I guess you could argue the AL East right now, but I just love the, the firepower and the star power right now out in the National League West. Now, we did see the Dodgers sweep the Giants. And that was a bit of a statement series for the Dodgers to go into San Francisco, win all three games. The Giants have struggled, Jim, to defeat teams that are leading their division or, or really strong clubs. They've really got a strong record, the Giants do, against the weaker teams now in the National League. But this past weekend uh, really showed that perhaps they're not quite the equal of the Padres and the Dodgers right now. And by the way, Jim, what also was happening this weekend, while the Dodgers were beating the Giants, is Cody Bellinger down at AAA playing well, getting healthy. And so you look at how well the Dodgers have played of late. They're about to add an MVP to the mix in Bellinger. Mookie Betts, after an injury-plagued start to the year, I think is starting to find his form. It's almost as though they're going to add an MVP and a half because they'll add Bellinger and then maybe the remaining level of Mookie Betts' normal performance. This is going to be a tough team to deal with. That They've been able to win, the Dodgers have, even with the second half of their lineup not quite looking like it normally does. Watch out once they get healthy. We are talking to John Morosi. All right, John, I also had your MLB Network colleague Sean Casey on the show last week, and we were trying to explain and break down Shohei Otani and what he's doing. Let me give you the same opportunity. How do you explain a guy who is second in the league in home runs and has an ERA of two three seven? Well, I will quote the noted baseball insider J.J. Watt, who tweeted last week, Jim, <laughs> I feel like a lot of people are talking about Shohei Otani, and yet we are not talking about Shohei Otani nearly enough. Right. <laughs> and that's where I'm at. J.J. is correct on this, on this point, because when you consider the magnitude of what he is doing, Jim, this is Ruthian stuff. This is Ruthian. We have no other means to compare what Otani is doing but to bring up the Bambino himself. Look at where Otani ranks in home runs in the American League. He's among the leaders. Look at where he ranks uh, among the leaders in earned run average. This is something that we simply have not seen in our lifetimes in really a century. And it's, of course, all happening against the backdrop of the Angels not having Mike Trout in the lineup, continuing to probably miss the playoffs, but he is still one of the great attractions in our sport. And why I love what he brings, Jim, is that I hope, I hope, he is forcing a lot of parents, travel ball coaches, little league coaches to reframe what I think has become a a toxic mentality around baseball in our country over the last 10 years or so, which is that you have to choose. You have to choose this sport or the other sport. And within baseball, you must choose pitching or hitting. Nonsense. Keep playing, keep doing all the things you love doing, and if Shohei Otani can do it at the most elite level, then all of us, all kids, boys and girls, should be dreaming about doing the same thing at the highest levels of their sports, too. We do talk about that, John. I've got one son who plays high school baseball, another son who's in college who did play high school baseball, and we used to always talk about that P.O., P.O., pitcher only, pitcher only. Well, not with my older son, but my younger son, for sure, so I know exactly what you're saying. So bottom line this, like, I stopped trying to get my head wrapped around it. I just appreciate it for what it is, whatever the hell it is is it sustainable can you see him doing it for an entire year or beyond well jim it's a great question and i think that's really going to be a key conundrum for the angels to solve as an organization they don't have enough elite pitching right now in my opinion for him to totally leave the rotation 
They just have not been able to build enough quality starting pitching for that to happen. You look at his production offensively, certainly he is more than productive enough to just do that on his own and be a very valuable player. In fact, when I spoke with him, Jim, before he made his MLB debut, it was a year, it was a year before that, uh, he was still playing for the Nippon Hem Fighters in Japan, and I interviewed him when they had a training trip to Arizona, and he said his favorite player to watch was Bryce Harper. That was the player he wanted to emulate, which is so funny to think about, uh, that that was the player. It wasn't even a pitcher. It was a position player. Hmm. So I, I think that he can continue, in my opinion, Jim, to probably pitch 110, 120 innings or so. I don't think he's going to be a 180-inning-a-year pitcher. I would really be surprised if he ever got to 200. But if we're going to talk about maintaining somewhere in the 110 to 120 innings plus offense, he can do it. I really think he can do it. And it's a matter of, of just titrating his workload so that way it has the most effectiveness. But, Jim, for the Angels to really get the most out of Otani and win, they're going to have to have a much better rotation so that way they can use him selectively. Just think about how dynamic he would be if he were on a team like the Dodgers, who have a full complement of starters as it already is, and then you can use him in a really high-leverage spot, maybe out of the bullpen here, start him there. It's a much better way to get the most out of him because of the overall balance of the roster on a team like that. Such a good point you make. John Morosi, my guest. John, I'm going to ask you one more thing before you go. You pointed this out, and I think it's really interesting. The White Sox, and you did point this out, have gone 1-4 since that 16-4 to win over Minnesota and that you're mean Mercedes home run. In your mind, is that a weird fluke, or is there something to that? You know, Jim, I think there might be a little bit to it that that it really knocked the clubhouse for a loop. Anytime you become not just the national baseball story, but the national sports story for a period of time, uh, even without the media in your clubhouse to remind you of it, I do think it, it causes you to reframe your your mentality a little bit. And it just seemed odd to me that, that Tony answered the question the way that he did. I, I, I believe Tony could have made some sort of statement about respecting the opposition without quite throwing his own player under the bus the way that he did. I think there was a way to thread that needle, and he just didn't have interest in doing that, I don't think. And I think it was unfortunate there. Uh, I know CC Sabathia made some very good comments about how if you're going to manage your team, you have to have your players back. And, and God forbid, if, he had been, if Mercedes, Mercedes had been hit by a pitch and injured, what happens then? And, and Because Tony really had opened the door for the overall retribution. Now, we could talk about how Mercedes ignored a sign, and that's, that's something that we have to think about, about the overall ethics of ignoring your manager's sign. You really can't do that either. But there was a way to handle it in a manner that would have lowered the temperature of, of the crisis. Instead, Tony did the opposite. And now, Jim, oh, by the way, he manages against the Cardinals for the first time in his major league career, which began back in 1979 as a manager, more than 5,000 games. The first time ever opposing the Cardinals is today, my friend. Mm, John Morosi, my guest. You can watch John across MLB Network's programming, including MLB Central weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern. Plus, MLB Network will feature Shohei Otani and the Angels tomorrow against the Rangers, 9.30 p.m. Eastern. That's going to be really interesting to see. John, great to have you back. Thank you very much. And it goes without saying, you and I will have a conversation again very soon. Jim, my friend, please reach out anytime. You're the best in the business. Always enjoy our conversations and look forward to the next one. Same, John. Thank you very much. Great to have you.
Let's go to West Virginia. Melissa. Hey, Melissa, what's going on? Hey, Jim. Just li- listening to your show and uh, working on some um, cases. I'm a COVID-19 tracer here in Kanawha County, and mm. that's what I'm doing right now. But I was calling you to let you know that I got out for good behavior out of horny jail that Tristan put me in on Friday. And that call was a lot of fun. I got to watch the clip when I got home, and we're still watching it and still laughing. But I wanted to invite you and the TR-14s. I found out their name from my brother. He's the one that got me watching your show. His name's Matt. But um, anytime you guys are in West Virginia, you're welcome to come down to eat dinner with us. I can fix you a homemade chicken pot pie or a homemade potato soup, two of my specialties. Now we're talking. All right, Melissa, thank you so much. Go ahead and rack her. Let me jump in and respond to that. So Melissa in West Virginia, quote, got out of the horny jail. Let's go to Huntington Beach. I like it. I like it a lot. Looking to RSVP, and yes, he has won one, and you can't take that from him. Silk Bra. What's up, Bra? Hey, Jimmy. How you doing, buddy? (laughs) Really good, Bra. How are you? I'm doing well. Hey, obviously I'm calling the RSVP, but I also wanted to say that, is it just me or does Melissa sound smoking hot? Come on. That's not a good call. No. You don't like that call. I don't like that call. Not a very good call. I'm not going to answer the question. I mean, maybe, maybe I think she does. And maybe I think she doesn't, or maybe I'm neutral, or... Yeah, that's it. I'm neutral. Good night now! 